Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. In this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins partners Marcus Funk and Gina LaMonica speak with Jim Studelberg, president of Primary Products at Tate & Lyle, a UK-headquartered global supplier of food and beverage ingredients. Jim addresses his experience at Tate & Lyle and discusses how white-collar practitioners can collaborate with management to foster a compliance-oriented atmosphere while helping business units to accomplish their goals. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Well, Jim, it is awesome to have you on our show, and we're particularly happy to have a fellow Chicagoan join us today. And we thought, you know, it would make sense to start off things with you telling us a little bit about Tate & Lyle, obviously a 160-year-old publicly traded food ingredients company, and one by way of full disclosure that I have some particular familiarity with because on our farm, we deliver soy and, and corn to the to the Tate and Lyle grain elevator in Decatur, and then we haul back gluten for cattle rations. So <laughs> that is probably not the part you deal with the most, but I, I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit about the company and sort of the areas of focus of the company and a little bit, just a little bit more about, about where you work. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Gina, for having me on. Uh, it's great to be here. And, and by the way, uh, the grain trading and the uh, animal nutrition side of it is something that falls under my business. So uh, very familiar with that. I've got to make sure I, I'm very nice and only ask the best questions. Okay, good. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we treat your family well. I suspect, <laughs> I suspect we do. Yeah, Tate and Lyle, you know, we, we can really, we can trace our roots back a long way, all the way back to 1859. We can, we can trace our roots back when Henry Tate went into partnership back in the UK with John Wright who was a sugar refiner uh, based in the UK at that time. So we go back a long way. We became Tate and Lyle proper in uh, 1921, I believe. I have that right. And, and and at one point in time, we were actually the largest sugar refiner in the world, even though we're not in sugar refining anymore. We've sold all of those assets and we're not actually in the in the cane or beet sugar refining industry anymore. But it, a kind of a fun fact about Tate and Lyle, we... We're one of the original companies listed during the formation of the London Stock Exchange. And of all the companies listed in the original London Stock Exchange, we're the only one left. That, that, is, a, that is a good fact. And how, how about your geographic spread so as a company, both, both your division and the, the company writ large? Where, where do you guys, where are you? I saw you recently acquired a tapioca business, showing maybe the diversity of, of the types of work that you do and the types of ingredients that you uh, that you provide. But uh, tell us a little bit about so number of employees, just some of the metrics. Sure. Yeah. Tate and Lyle, you know, we're, we're, of course, a global company headquartered in the UK, very strong, significant portion of our footprint here in the US. The vast majority of what we do comes from corn. And obviously, uh, you know, you want to be close to the source. So a lot of our assets, a lot of our folks are here in the US. Uh, even though we are global, we have two global businesses, 42, roughly 4,200 people globally. The, the business that I run is is kind of more the, you, you probably would call it the commoditized 
part of Tate and Lyle. That's called Primary Products. And that's, you know, roughly two and a half billion out of the three and a half, roughly three and a half billion in sales. And then we have uh, the other business we have is, is called Food and Beverage Solutions, more of our specialty business, you know, lower volumes, higher margins. And the specialty business has a true global footprint, uh, meaningful presence in all the major regions of the world. And, and, and growth outside of our traditional U.S. footprint is a big part of that strategy. The primary products business that I run is is more anchored in the north american market we we have assets outside of the u.s as well uh, we're very active in, in latin america particularly mexico uh, brazil etc but uh, the business i run though global has more of a an america's centric approach and the specialty business uh, food and beverage solutions is is, is more about trying to glow uh, grow more intentionally in a global way Sure. And we've we've touched on it a little bit here, Jim, with your overview, which was very helpful. Can you tell us a little bit more about your day-to-day life uh, as the president of Primary Products? What does a day look like for you? Yeah, a lot different today than it did about eight <laughs> or nine months ago, that's for sure. We've uh, I've been working from home since March 13th. You know, I, I think when you look at Primary Products, our role in the, in the, in the Tate and Lyle story is, is all about steady earnings. It's all about you know, kind of keeping the assets full. It's all about long-term customer relationships uh, with some really large food and beverage players and some really large industrial and paper players out there. Uh, so I spend an awful lot of my time with our customer-facing teams. You know, uh, on on those aspects of our, our of our business, I spend an awful lot of our time, my time, of course with you know the operation side of our business because you know being a commodity business uh, operational excellence reliability efficiency you know those are pretty important when it comes to uh, running this kind of a business uh, effectively so i mean a day in the life for me is 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 probably uh, checking in with each of those key stakeholders on a regular basis making sure that our key priorities are moving forward making sure that our change agenda is on on track uh, and always, always, always making sure that we're taking care of our customers. And I bet those interactions have changed a little bit from in-person to remote these days, or are you uh, getting out and about to any extent? Yeah, we, we haven't really started traveling to any large degree yet. Uh, we, we've had certain cases where we've kind of had to visit some customers, you know, for kind of critical process-related uh, uh, things where we needed to, to provide some expertise. But for the most part, we haven't really gotten back to traveling. So uh, we've been like the rest of the world trying to figure out how to be effective through uh, forums like this. And I I have to say that was one of my big fears when COVID hit was how do you stay close to your customers, you know, when you're at home? And we've gotten pretty, I would say, innovative in that regard. You know, we've, we've very quickly deployed all the right tools to all of our customer facing folks. And We've even found in some cases that some that our customers are easier to get a hold of these days than they used to be because they're also at home. Uh, so there's been kind of a, I don't know, a, a focusing on key priorities we've seen both at our customers as well as at Tate and Lyle. And, and somehow that's allowed us to to maintain strong customer relationships and maybe even strengthen them. 
And kind of taking a step back from today, we also wanted to discuss a little bit the path that got you where you are now. You know, we saw that you spent 17 years at uh, a global material science company, including five years in Shanghai. And so would you tell us a little bit about how you got to your position where you are now? Yeah, you know, I grew up in the specialty chemicals industry, the specialty materials industry. I'd say my my most formative years were kind of those 17 years with Dow Corning. Uh, At that time, Dow Corning was a joint venture between Dow Chemical and Corning Glass. And the ownership structure of that has since changed since I left. I think Dow kind of now owns most of what was Dow Corning. But then that all got shuffled around when Dow and DuPont did their merger and then split off into three companies. So the company I used to know as Dow Corning isn't uh, doesn't exist the way it used to. But anyway, that's where my formative years were. And as you mentioned, probably half of my time at Dow Corning, I spent focused on Asia. So probably eight or nine years of my time at Dow Corning were Asia centric with five of those years being actually living in Shanghai, China. So yeah, I mean, I think my journey has been mostly about customer facing roles product line kind of commercial leadership general management type roles and like you say a lot of it a lot of it really based in asia uh, prior to my my tate and lyle journey and has that global experience you know eight or nine years either focusing on asia markets or living in asia how has that to any extent impacted the way that you approach management managing people managing client relationships any impact in those areas yeah i mean as I look back, well, anybody who's moved outside of their home country knows that it's just a kind of a game changer in a lot of ways, uh, some ways that are obvious, maybe even some ways that are not so obvious. But certainly, you know, moving to a country uh, that's that's literally on the other other side of the world, learning new customs, learning new cultures, learning new languages, it just changes the way you see the world. I think it opens your mind. I think it makes you more curious about what you see going on around you and why. It certainly had taught me a lot about the importance of cultural awareness, kind of cultural sensitivity and understanding uh, how that plays into the way you do business in different parts of the world, the way you connect with people, you know, in different parts of the world. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, that experience uh, shaped me in, in lots of ways that are probably even difficult to describe. And uh, I, I, frankly, I, even my kids, you know, I, I think the way that we raised our kids, the, the kinds of uh, how their minds are so open to so many things uh, from that experience. Yeah, I think it's it's touched us in a lot of different ways. Yeah, on that note, and, you know, our firm has multiple offices in China. What was the thing that surprised you the most, both sort of professionally and personally in, in, in during your time there? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we moved there. I, I accepted the role in 2003 and, uh, and then kind of the next handful of months with the process of moving the family over there. So kind of in that 2003, 2004 range, it, you know, China was, was quite different there uh, then. Uh, even compared to, to now, right? That's a, the pace of change in that in that part of the world, particularly in that country, has been rapid. But at that time, you know, I think that was the moment in time when a lot of big companies were making their big bets in that part of the world, building plants, you know, sending sending their their best and brightest from different you know uh, parts of their business into China to try to figure it out. And I, so, I think that. One thing that struck me when I got there was just how happy 
the folks in China seemed to be because they were really becoming a serious player on the global in the global markets and on the kind of global stage uh, after having been, you know, not really open to the rest of the world for the last 50 you know, years prior to kind of the 90s. Right. So in the early 2000s, they were still in the process of growing into being a really serious global player that they are today. And, and they were quite happy. They were quite proud to be um, coming onto the global stage, I guess, after not having been a part of a lot of the global uh, business uh, for such a long time. So that definitely struck me. And I think another thing that struck me was just the how fast things happen there. You know, decisions are made quickly. And, you know, as a as a Westerner coming in there, part of a big corporate global structure. You know, we make decisions in a certain way and, and we do analysis in a certain way. And when you get into a situation like that, you have to reorient a little bit the way you do things and be prepared to move fast because the pace of change there is pretty fast. And did you find sort of reintegrating uh, into the U.S. again uh, more difficult than you thought i mean as someone who myself i've I, I spent a lot of time overseas and every time i'm back at first there's always that little period of time when you're it's just you're not quite home until you're home so how did you feel about that yeah for sure i, I dealt with some of that I, I think from two lenses number one it felt really boring when i got back here because things slowed down decisions were made more slowly. There wasn't as much growth investment happening in this part of the world just because this was a, a much more developed uh, economy. So I just sort of felt like, what's next? What's next? You know, the uh, you know, it's almost I had to slow myself down. I think the other thing is when you get back from an experience like that, you know, in, in, in some ways, in some ways, you almost have to put put that experience into a in, into a drawer, and sometimes, and you can only take it out sometimes because not everybody. You know can relate to that uh, not everybody can connect with that especially if they haven't had that type of an experience so i i found myself wanting to talk about it more but 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 feeling a little bit like i probably shouldn't because you know everybody gets that glazed look on their eyes when i start talking about <laughs> my china experience and say like, okay all right jim you're talking about it too much you know put it back in the drawer for now nobody cares <laughs> so i remember feeling that way a little bit too uh, when i first got back and you know you and gina sort of touched on it on, on obviously this this uh, unique uh, experience the era of covid that we're all going through i mean on a on a both professional level and personal level what have you found to be the biggest changes the biggest impacts that that this era hopefully which is not long for to go here still uh, but what what what's been your biggest your, your observation about the biggest impacts well i mean it, it's it's obviously um changed the way we communicate with customers it's changed the way we do meetings i think in some ways it's forced us to be more focused on the, the things that really matter you know I, I think and frankly it's changed consumer behaviors, obviously a lot. And we care a lot about that because our customers, you know, are, are some of the leading consumer goods brands out there. And I think we're all trying to figure out what consumer behavior, which of these changes are going to be permanent, which of these changes are just kind of temporary COVID related consumer behavior changes. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, the other thing is it's, it's caused us to rethink how we think about safety of our employees and then and safety in our in our plants, particularly, you know, as an essential manufacturer, we're part of the food chain. So we never stopped manufacturing through the whole COVID situation. And both in terms of keeping our employees safe and keeping our plants running, we had to, we had to think quickly 
about what sort of changes needed to be made there and, and, and how, to, how to keep our employees safe, how to prevent an outbreak from happening in one of our plants. You know, we saw that with some of the meat processors where they had to shut down. And, and so that was, uh, uh, we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to avoid that type of a situation and, and kind of had to rethink the whole safety thing. And to the extent that you you wouldn't, I'm not asking you to share a uh, uh, sense of business secrets, but it's interesting when you talk about the changes in consumer behavior. Uh, what what particular behaviors or what changes are you are you seeing as an industry and and as Tate and Lyle? Well, uh, uh, the biggest Tate and Lyle. I mean, probably eighty or ninety percent of our business is focused on food and beverage. Um, so our customers are you know, food and beverage uh, brands out there. The, the big ones that we've all heard of, plus the small, you know, uh, upstarts that maybe some people haven't heard of, you know, and everybody in between. We work with, with all of those folks. And, you know, w- the way we consume food and the way we eat and the way we drink has changed quite a bit in some cases because of mandate, you know, government mandates. Restaurants had to close for a period of time or movie theaters, you know, that sort of thing, sports, sports venues, you know, you think about all the places where you consume food uh, and, and drink. So, and then the, another big market that we serve is, is, is the paper and packaging producers. There's a, there, you know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, the average piece of paper is about 10% cornstarch by weight. And so, you know, papers consumed, where's paper consumed It's consumed in schools. It's consumed in office buildings, government buildings, right? So all of that, you know, uh, disruption we've seen. So, and that's impacted, you know, our customers. And so in the future, you know, you get a vaccine or folks, you know, learn to live with this virus in a more, in a more comfortable way day to day. And do people just return back to the cinemas right away? Or are they going to be uncertain about that? Are people going to return back to uh, restaurants, um, bars right away? Or are they going to be a little more uncertain about that? And, and, uh, you know, how are companies like yours and mine going to think about office space and uh, remote working versus and, and what does that mean for paper consumption and et cetera? So uh, we're in the process of trying to figure some of those things out like everybody else is and, and how that's likely to impact our business longer term. And, and you know, as, a, as someone who works with such a global company with, with, a, with a global reach and who has worked overseas, I'm going to guess that, you know, for better or for worse, you've dealt with lawyers quite a bit over the years and uh, was curious and we'll have some questions about sort of the types of characteristics you like and perhaps don't like uh, from from attorneys, but maybe sort of stepping back a little bit, if you could tell us a little bit about sort of your approach to dealing with lawyers, which is a, a pretty broad question, and then also specific to the work we do, a sort of compliance investigations, if you have any observations on some of the experiences you've had and, and your general philosophy towards towards working with lawyers. Yeah, I think, well, maybe compliance let's start there because i know that's kind of near and dear to you your practice and um maybe we can start there and then we can broaden it out a little bit from there but you know compliance is a big deal it's a big deal for our industry it's a big deal for our company we take it pretty seriously uh, very seriously i think that you know you don't have to go back very far actually the history of the industry that i work in to find some pretty well-known cases We've all seen the movie The Informant by uh, with Matt Damon, right? And I mean that 
that involved broadly, let's say, the industry that we play in. That was animal nutrition, uh, the lysine being sold in largely to uh, animal feed ration kind of uh, uses. So pretty near and dear to our industry there. And that still casts a shadow over our industry and our company in terms of taking it very seriously. Uh, compliance and ethics and, and and doing ethical business in the 90s you know there was a there was a pretty a pretty i'd say public lawsuit you know where where some consumers of high fructose corn syrup you know filed a lawsuit against producers of high fructose corn syrup and around antitrust uh, you know or suspicions of antitrust which i think ultimately turned out not to be founded in, in fact but anyway there was a pretty high uh, visibility lawsuit there uh, so you don't have to go back very far to to find some examples of of, of you know uh, these kind of things in our industry. And so yeah, we we take it really seriously. We, we've set up recently. We've set up these things called CECs, to kind of acronym, but regional control councils basically, where we get together every quarter and we look at all kind of uh, issues related to compliance, related to you know ethics, related to audit, you know audit findings, closing out audit findings, and so forth. Uh, so we've put up uh, a pretty serious structure in place to to train our folks, to remind them of the importance of it, uh, to review any issues that have come up and make sure that they're resolved. And it's a pretty big deal for us. And and sort of following up on that, any observations you had, again, drawing on your on your transnational experience on on different approaches, the UK versus Shanghai versus the US kind of different philosophies that you've seen about compliance and how to manage that particular function. Yeah. I mean, it, well, I don't have to tell you, I mean, the, the laws are different in every country, aren't they? There's the anti-corruption laws vary by country and what may be kind of okay in one country isn't okay in another country. And business practices vary greatly by country. And, you know, I think each country's on its own journey from that standpoint. So it's, yeah, I think the, the important thing for folks like us is to, to be clear about what your code of conduct is, what it entails, what's acceptable and what's not, uh, because that's non-negotiable globally. I don't care what country you live in. I don't care what business practice might be acceptable where you live. If, if it's against the Tate and Lau code of conduct or whichever company you work for, then it's not okay, period. And so, yeah, I think over the years, having lived in different places and worked in different places, I've learned that it's, you've got to be clear, you've got to be consistent, you've got to communicate what your expectations are, and then you've got to continue to remind people, annual training, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I think if you don't get your arms around it and you aren't intentional about it, you could find that you have some problems uh, because we do see different laws and different business practices in different countries. And as you become more intentional about it or maintain that intentionality, have you noticed any differences in terms of the role that management or the executive functions are playing in compliance, you know, over the course of your career and and more recently, things like tone at the top, are you finding that you're getting involved in the compliance and ethics more and more as time passes? A hundred percent. I mean, I'm, so I'm the, I sit on the executive committee, and I'm, I'm, I'm of course, the president of the business that I uh, that, that I look after. But I also run the North American Regional Control Council. So we we have the most senior person in whichever region runs the Regional Control Council, and that's in, again that's intentional. That's a that's a, a signal to our to our teams 
about the importance of compliance and the importance of of ethics and and so forth. So absolutely, and I think, you know, I I noticed a shift. I, I would say this, you know, I mean, early two thousands, Enron, Sarbanes Oxley, you know, anybody who kind of grew up around the time I did in business knows Sarbanes-Oxley very, very well. And, and I think ever since then, I've definitely seen, you know, companies, at least that I've worked for and, and, and probably many, many others uh, become much more intentional in, 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 in some of these areas uh, around compliance and, and ethics. And as you take on more of a, you know, external facing role in, in dealing with compliance activities, We were wondering if you have thoughts on, you know, what lawyers in-house counsel, external counsel can be doing to help people like yourself succeed in that role. Yeah, I I think I thought a little bit about this, you know, prior to jumping on today. And and I think the, the first thing we as business leaders have to make sure that lawyers are part of our leadership team. I think first and foremost, you know, when I have a a primary products executive committee meeting, my head lawyer for my business is is on my team and is in those meetings. Uh, why, why, why do I start there? Because, you, you know, the best lawyers that I've worked with over the years are business partners first, kind of, and lawyers second, and really understanding the nuance of the business and how we do things. And that's when you can be at your best, I think, as a business partner. The second thing I would say is to uh, one of the pieces of advice I give to young leaders out there, uh, you know, earlier in their career, get lawyers involved early if you're not sure. Uh, there's no risk. You know, nobody ever said, wow, that was a huge mistake to get legal advice a little bit earlier. Nobody ever said that. So if something's happening and you're not quite sure and you're not even quite sure how to handle it, get your get your lawyers involved early, even in contract negotiations. You know, if your lawyers are involved early, listening uh, and understanding the essence of the deal, it's an awful lot easier for them to do their jobs than and help you convert that into legal language that works for both parties, et cetera. So that's the second thing. I, you know, get your lawyers involved early and in whatever it is you, you you know you're working on. And you know, I, I think that you know the other thing I would say is you know the best lawyers that I've worked with come they 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 come at it from the angle of how can we make this work versus listing all the reasons why this can't work. And I think that's that's maybe a piece of advice I would give to younger lawyers uh, that are that are trying to figure out how to become good business partners whether you're, you know, in-house or whether you're, you know, work for a law firm, how business leaders that that are partnering with you, they're they're looking to to solve something, to accomplish something and and so coming at it coming at it from the lens of how can we make this work versus just giving me a bunch of reasons why it can't uh, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. We actually, we hear that quite a bit. You know, and this brings me, of course, to one of my favorite questions always as a lifelong sort of a person who has felt conflicted about being a lawyer. I'm not one of those folks who's a huge fan of lawyers in my personal life. The question is when you, you know, you've dealt with so many lawyers, you've dealt with lawyers uh, outside counsel, you've dealt with probably regulatory type lawyers or enforcement lawyers and dealt, obviously, you work very closely, as it's like it sounds like, with your in-house teams. So, uh, you're a sophisticated consumer of legal services, let's say. So, in, in the spirit of giving tips to, 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 to the younger lawyers coming up, but also to sort of just law, you know, old, older folks like myself who are, who, are, who are out there, what are the 
characteristics and you know maybe i don't know top five top three whatever number you want to come up with so your your three and you've already named one which is essentially don't come to me with a list of problems come to me with some solutions but what other things do you really like that can be a personality type that can be sort of a professional approach presumably responsiveness things like that what are the things that you really like to see in your lawyers in-house and outside counsel and then we'll get to the even more fun part which is what are the things that drive you crazy the most yeah, I, I think, what do I really like in lawyers? I, I think it's listening. I think the best lawyers that I've worked with are some of the best listeners that I've worked with. And, you know, when you're a lawyer, you're often a content expert. Uh, and so when you're a content expert, I think your, your natural tendency is to share your content, right? <laughs> and, you know, you guys learn how to be really good orators in, in, in law school, and you learn how to put together really coherent and logical arguments and and uh that's a big part of it but listening really understanding for the nuance before coming in with the the solution uh, so I, I think i think you know somebody told me a long time ago I, it might have been my grandpa you know you have two ears and one mouth so you should use them roughly in that proportion you know <laughs> sometimes i have to remind myself of that too but that's probably one piece of advice i'd give uh, as a business partner i think curiosity you know i think lawyers that are curious tend to be really good lawyers uh, because you, you know, you, you you know when you're curious, you, you go that extra one or two yards to research uh, maybe a, a, a different lawsuit in the past that might be relevant that might help us think about this in a different way. So, and I think curious lawyers tend to tend to want to learn more about the business too. You know, they ask a lot of questions and and they, they want to build that foundation of understanding uh, before really, uh, let's say, applying their expertise. And I, I think I guess the last thing that comes to mind when I think about is is simplifying the complex. I've come across an awful lot of lawyers over the years that have a good way of complexifying the simple. <laughs> you know, and even just think about some of the language we use in the contracts and I, I'll just, uh, sorry, what does this even mean? You know, I, I only have two degrees. I realize I'm not that smart, but I still don't know what this means, you know, those kind of conversations. So I think lawyers that can simplify the complex are uh, tend to be the best you know, business partners and the best at uh, helping to get to a sensible solution quickly. But that deprives us of the ability to kind of make what we do shrouded in mystery. So you think like, <laughs> oh, I've really got to hire Gina because only she can understand these complex Latin terms. No, I've got to say when you, when you talk about listening more than speaking, which is uh, without a doubt my one of my greatest one of my many weaknesses, but one of my greatest ones is I don't <laughs> do that. I remember when I first started in private practice, uh, Andy Holloman, who was a chief of compliance at Newmont Mining, uh, we had a meeting, a, you know, a, a call, and and afterwards, and I didn't know him that well. We ended up teaching a class together and and so forth. But he um, he said to me, you know, Marcus, uh, there's one thing that you should uh, try to do more. It's listen more and speak less. And I thought, well, wait, I'm, I'm being hired because of my great expertise on this topic. And no doubt the board members all want to hear every little nuance to my thinking. And at the time, I remember I was staying in Boulder on Pearl Street and it really like, I felt really horrible, but that was the best, again, not a piece of advice. I, I, I actually practice as much as I should, but I thought that was such a great piece of advice. And, for, and I, I always joked with him about it because I didn't really know him that well. And so for him to say that at first, I was I wasn't offended, but I was sort of hurt a little bit. But it ended up being one of those great bits of advice that you 
you just always feel you know indebted to the person for giving you because it's probably not that easy to give you know marcus i had a very similar experience you know maybe you and i are alike in some ways i don't know but i had a a, a, a senior leader who i who i still respect greatly to this day who gave me a very similar piece of advice and, and the way he said it was jim listen you're really smart and you're good at what you do and you're effective in your job and don't feel like you have to prove that every single time you talk to somebody about anything you ever talk to them about. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that that was one of those that, you know, felt like he was punching a hole right through the middle of me when he gave it to me. But as I reflect back on that piece of advice was probably one of the most, I would say, impactful in a positive way, pieces of advice that I've ever gotten in my life. See, people like us, we just have to learn through failure at times, right? I mean, those are the ones that always, the things that we do right sometimes, you know, they, they get forgotten. But the thing that when people point out things you do wrong, believe me, I could, we could go for two hours on that topic with myself and, and private practice. You just really realize when you first start, and in my case, I came from the government, you know, uh, how how many skill sets there are out there that are required to do this job well. And, you know, unlike someone like Gina, who's been good at it from day one, I just really had to retool a lot. And and so it's interesting to hear that it makes me feel better that you had a similar <laughs> similar experience. Well, how about the, the flip side? Now, maybe it is the flip side. Maybe the opposite of all the good traits are just that, the absence of these good traits that you described in terms of what you're looking for. But I'm guessing there are some negative traits that some lawyers you've dealt with have. You don't need to name names that you've really found off-putting. And I'm curious about, again, they could be just a negative of what we just talked about, but or the opposite of what we talked about. But curious to see if you have some things, some kind of anecdotes. Again, you don't have to get into much detail, but that you have in mind where, where, where maybe a lawyer was just perfectly on the right track until all of a sudden they veered off by doing something or saying something that didn't put you or maybe the business generally off from them. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about, you know, bad traits, but I, I, I think of it like the lawyers that I've seen maybe that have been less effective. Yeah. The, the, than some of the others, what, what did some of what I saw that made me maybe experience them as less effective? I, I think number one, I would go back to the listening and talking thing, just, you know, almost a little bit of a, of an arrogant kind of, uh, everybody sit down and be quiet. I'm, I'm about to teach you kind of, a an approach. Uh, I've seen that. Uh, a fair bit certainly certainly that that can prevent somebody from being very effective i think the the other thing i would say is you know in some ways being a good lawyer a good legal business partner you know is about finding a way to thread that needle uh in a way in a way that allows us to accomplish our objectives but always 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 keeps us on the right side of of the law and, and the right side of just ethics and, and compliance and that's not always easy to get to get to, to thread that needle and 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 i think you know some of the some of the lawyers that i've i've seen maybe that are less effective are very reluctant to kind of get on the field with you and help you thread that needle maybe almost overly risk averse if, if that's one way to think of it not very flexible in their thinking you know I, like, jim you asked me this and i've already answered it three times i I know, but I feel like there's got to be a different way. Well, you know, okay, you can ask me again. I'm going to give you the same answer. So something about maybe being not being very flexible or not being very agile in their thinking. I think that's important as well for a, for a lawyer to be, to be most effective. You can't be too rigid, can you? When you're trying to thread a needle uh, for a complex business solution or a business problem. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're describing 
sort of also frankly taking a chance by giving an opinion you know we always hear about the 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 two-handed lawyer you know on the one hand on the other hand and you know you've got to make the decision i think that's something that that uh, we hear about quite a bit in terms of criticisms of of lawyers writ large so sort of as we are wrapping up as you look forward to the end of the COVID era whenever that is and beyond what what do you see as the biggest challenges for your business, for your business unit, as you kind of take this longer term, medium to longer term horizon view. I go back to that, you know, consumer behavior, understanding where people are going to go from their uh, consumer behavior standpoint. I mean, we've seen very clearly that people that are healthy tend to do better with this virus than people who who have underlying health concerns like, you know, diabetes, uh, obesity, other, other, other things. And so, We've definitely seen a shift in the way people are thinking about health and wellness. I think everybody was most, a lot of people already were thinking about health and wellness, but certainly this COVID uh, crisis is, has um, caused, uh, I think, the world to think about health and wellness in a different way, in a more urgent way. And so how's that going to impact the way uh, food companies formulate their, their products and offer products to consumers? What's that going to mean for the overall trend of health and wellness related uh, food and beverage? And what role can Tate and Lyle play in helping to accelerate those trends in a positive direction? I think that's a, a big area where we spend a lot of time thinking about where we go kind of post-COVID for sure. And, you know, COVID has forced our customers to, you know, demand i mean when you think about what's going to happen over the next three to six months can you can any of us predict what's going to happen over the next three to six months uh, you know and so our customers are in, in in a world where they're trying to predict demand and and they're trying to help us run our plants and we're trying to predict what demand is going to look like and we're trying to do supply planning and it's just a very volatile world right now from that standpoint because you have even less visibility than normal about what's going to happen in the next three to six months so uh, trying to continue to get closer with our customers so that we can continue to be a reliable supplier for them is, is, is something we think an awful lot about too in an environment where we're not sure what's going to happen in the months ahead. So Jim, in our discussions leading up to today, we came to learn that you are very battle tested in a number of, let's say, complex commercial litigation disputes, and you have been deposed several times, which are condolences from Marcus and myself for that. But we were curious to see if you would be willing to discuss with us any tactics that you've seen lawyers use in depositions that were particularly effective or conversely spectacular failures? Unfortunately, yes, I, I am what you might call a, a little bit battle tested in, in as you say, complex uh, commercial litigation. Um, and I've been deposed, I think I've lost count probably at least five times in my uh, in my career, unfortunately, each of them in about seven or eight hour increments. <laughs> yeah, I think Obviously, when you're, that just means you are a good witness. Yeah, we had a lot of material to get through. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I learned a lot during that portion of my career when that was happening. That was, you know, something they don't train you for in business school. And I learned a lot. Clearly, when you're going through a deposition like that, you know, there's certain both sides come in with certain objectives. You know, the certainly the 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 lawyers that are asking you the tough questions, uh, they have certain objectives. There are certain things that they want you to say and, and, and because they're trying to build a case. And it didn't take me very long to figure that out. And you can tell by the line of questioning, 
you know, they're often trying to lead you down a path to say something that, that might be incriminating or whatever. So I, I learned a lot about how to just stick to the facts, remove the emotion from it and just, just answer the questions and stay calm, which isn't always my strong suit, you know? <laughs> and I think that one of the, my biggest learnings from that was how easy it is to twist your words from an email that you might have written seven years ago or five years ago or twist your meaning i guess is, is probably a better way to say it and i think that you just have to stay calm and stay fact-based the the other the other thing i would say that i really learned from that when you go through the experience of having to word for word read through emails that you wrote five or six years ago it really causes you to to think about even more now be more intentional about what you put in writing and what you don't put in writing because you can five years down the road kind of twist it to, to mean something very different from the way you meant it when you put it in writing so it definitely taught me to be choiceful with my words and to to make sure that what i put in writing is actually what i mean and can't be misinterpreted as any, any other way and, and i think it taught me to be judicious with my with my written correspondence and, and not to not to um to stray too far off into un un unnecessary directions because it can bring up complexities down the road yeah, Marcus and I, um, we've actually turned that lesson that we've seen our clients go through painfully sometimes into an uh, educational opportunity for our clients. We call it communications excellence. And uh, it actually, I think it is a valuable lesson, you know, that can be addressed proactively, but sometimes until you see that email you know, staring right in front of you. Why did I word it like that? That's not how I meant it. You know, it's going to get twisted. It can be a really uh, unfair experience, but something we try to get out ahead of. Yeah. Uh, another, another reason I say uh, when you're involved in a, in a, in a, what's shaping up to be a relatively complex business situation, bring your lawyer friends in, bring them in early and, and let them help you think about how to move forward. It's, it's, it's almost always a good idea to do that. And, and Jim, if you don't mind to wrap up on a lighter note, as we approach the middle and end of November, we wanted to ask you as folks start hunkering down for the winter, maybe getting out less, if you were eating out less to pick one product from Tate and Lyle to stock your unlimited supply of what would be your, what would be your key ingredient or your, your favorite food product? I would have to say if I was going to be hunkered down over the course of the winter, which I hope we're not, but if I, <laughs> if, if I was. Just due to the weather alone, you have yes. to, you always have to plan for that. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to say that I would want to have ample supply of blue can Pepsi and red can Coke sweetened with nothing but the finest Tate and Lyle ingredients. There you go. <laughs> well, Jim, thanks so much for spending the time with us and uh, and giving us some of your insights. It's always great to have a non-lawyer join our podcast because I think we actually get some really useful tips of the trade and also things, good lessons for people at all stages of their career. So uh, on a personal note, just really delighted to, to, to meet you and uh, spend some time with you. And on behalf of Perkins and, and the ABA, just really want to thank you for, for taking the time today. Yeah. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Gina. I really appreciated uh, the opportunity to talk with you guys and enjoyed our conversation. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. 
please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.